HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Kim Kessler. I'm with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA's School of Law. And today we're broadcasting live from Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn at Roberta's. I want to welcome my assistant producer, Talia Ralph, who's joining me in the studio today to co-host. Hi, Talia. Great to have you here. And today, in a nod to the Passover holiday, which is starting tomorrow, we are going to be talking about kosher food and the labeling system behind it. As we all know, food labeling is a big deal right now, with more consumers wanting more information about the food they eat, how it's produced, and where it's from, and at the same time, major concerns about whether labels are accurate. Our guest, Timothy Lighton, is a professor of law at Albany Law School, and he wrote a book about one label that has succeeded in maintaining consumer trust, the kosher label. His book is called Kosher, Private Regulation in the Age of Industrial Food, and it was published by Harvard University Press, and I'm thrilled to have him joining us. Hi, Tim. Hi, it's nice to be here. And you're joining us on the line from Albany, so welcome. We wish you were here in Brooklyn with us. We want to dive right in with hearing a little bit more about kosher food and this labeling system. So as you write in your book, kosher food is significant for many reasons from a food policy perspective, mainly because it's big business with more than 12 million American consumers buying kosher and interestingly, only 8% of these consumers uh, being religious Jews. So can you give us a little more context about how available and widely consumed kosher food is in America? Sure. Kosher food is really a very significant market segment. Kosher food sales are running about $12 billion a year, and there are more products in your local supermarket that are labeled kosher than products labeled organic, natural, or premium all put together. So it's not, you know, uh, a dominant 
feature of all the food in the supermarket, but I'd say about a third or two-thirds of the products in the supermarket, the packaged products, have kosher certification on them, depending wow. on where you live in the country. And it's a significant market, and it's a market that the food industry really listens quite carefully to. And why is it that so many consumers are drawn to it? Consumers are drawn to kosher for a variety of reasons. As you mentioned in your introduction, about 8% of the 12 million kosher consumers, and when I talk about kosher consumers, I'm talking about people that when they go into the cereal aisle or the cake mix aisle, they're looking for a box that has a kosher certification symbol on it. Of those 12 million, about 8% are religious Jews who eat kosher all the time. The rest of the market is made up by people who use kosher as a proxy. Some people use kosher as a proxy for dietary restrictions, like dairy intolerance or they're looking for kosher products with a PARV label, meaning there are no dairy ingredients in it. Some people think that kosher is healthier. They believe that because there's been an extra level of supervision beyond food safety, you have a rabbi or a person with religious convictions looking over the production process, that the food is safer. And a number of people use kosher as a proxy for other kinds of religious dietary restrictions. So a lot of halal consumers rely on the kosher label. That's interesting. And Tim, um, how does it compare to the halal market? Because that's definitely another interesting... Um, area that's that's growing rapidly in in America, right? Halal is very similar insofar as the global market for halal foods is going to require increasingly a system of reliable private certification. The system of food demand for halal and food production is just too broad across the globe for it to be controlled by any one government or even by a number of governments. So halal as a market segment is currently looking for ways to build a reliable certification system, and kosher provides a really good example of that. Halal is different in a couple important ways. One is it's still an emerging market, so it's not nearly as developed as kosher certification. Kosher certification in the modern industrial food market has been around for over 100 years, and that experience has really helped kosher build reliability. Kosher has not always been reliable, and in the early years of its existence in the United States, it was very unreliable. And the second big difference about halal is it's potentially a much larger market because there are far more Muslims and people who would be looking for halal-certified food. So those are two challenges that halal faces, but there's increasing dialogue between halal certification agencies and kosher certification agencies and a desire to build on the experience of kosher. I love that. I love that collaboration between Jews and Muslims about certifying food. Um, and what drew you to write about kosher food in the first place? We live in a era in which the political debate is really stuck between two positions. One is people who want more government regulation and people who want less government regulation. And anybody who actually works inside the regulatory system or works in industry realizes that actually regulation comes in many forms, and it comes in many forms that don't involve government regulation at all. There are a lot of examples of non-government regulation. And certification, private certification, is a common one. So, for example, all of the electrical products in your house, your toaster oven and the wiring in the walls, has a fire safety certification on it from Underwriters Laboratories. That's a private certification. All of the investments that an, in, that an institution makes um, or buying bonds are all rated by private rating agencies. And forestry certification, if you go to Home Depot and you want to buy lumber, much of it is certified by private certifiers. And this kind of regulation, this private regulation, is also common in food. So we have fair trade labels and GMO-free labels and sustainable fisheries labels. And I was drawn to kosher because kosher is really the oldest and among the best developed of these private certification systems. And it provides a particularly interesting story because the beginning of the kosher story in America is a story of unreliability and failure and corruption. And if you fast forward 80 years over the course of the 20th century, one finds that 
there's actually huge development, and the system today is very reliable, so that when you go into the supermarket and you buy something that's labeled kosher, there's a very high reliability that it is, in fact, kosher. So one of the things that you do talk about in your book is um, the unreliability of some of the other certification systems, including some of the big food safety certification mechanisms that are in place. Um, so can you spell that out a little bit more and, and tell the story of uh, how, how kosher got there from, from the early days where there was a lot of fraud? Well, one of the things about kosher, which goes all the way back to the ancient period, is for 2,000 years, every community, every Jewish community in the, in the world, in Europe and in North Africa and in the Middle East, had a community council. And that community council governed the community. And among the things that that community council did was to hire a ritual slaughterer. And that ritual slaughterer would provide kosher meat for the community. And if the ritual slaughterer was not properly trained, or the ritual slaughterer started to cut corners, or the ritual slaughterer, God forbid, was engaged in some sort of fraud, that person could be disciplined or fired by the community. And the community council really supervised kosher slaughter and kosher certification for 2,000 years. And that's a system in which the certifier works for and is paid by the consumer. And that's a reliable system. All of this came to a crashing halt in the United States around 1813. When Jews came to the United States, they tried to recreate the system of communal control over their kosher food. So when Jews moved to cities, they moved to New York, they moved to Charleston, they moved to Baltimore, they moved to Boston or Newport, they would establish a congregation. And each city had one congregation. And the first job of that congregation's board of directors, before they even hired a rabbi, was to hire a ritual slaughterer so people could have meat. And so in every city in the United States, every Jewish community, the local ritual slaughterer worked for the community. And if the community was unhappy, the council would fire that person. And where did it go wrong? In 1813, the congregation in Manhattan, which was called Sherry Israel, had a kosher slaughterer named Jacob Abrams. And there had been a lot of complaints about him. He had been around for about 10 years. And they finally got fed up and they fired him. And Abrams went out on his own, and he set up shop, and he started to slaughter kosher meat and sell it through local butchers without the approval of the community council. The community council was so outraged that they went to the common council of the city of New York, and they asked for the common council to pass an ordinance that would grant them the exclusive right to license people to sell kosher meat. And the common council agreed and said nobody in the city of New York can sell kosher meat unless they have the approval of the religious council of the congregation. And, of course, this being America, Jacob Abrahams went out and he did what we today call lawyering up. And he got a bunch of supporters from the congregation, and they went back to the Common Council, and they said, this is America. In America, unlike Europe and unlike North Africa, it's free country. We have religious freedom, and we have a free market. And anybody who wants to buy my meat, if I say it's kosher, should be able to. And the Common Council reversed itself. And thus was born a brand-new institution in 2,000 years of kosher history, the independent kosher slaughterer. And that kosher slaughterer no longer worked for the community council or the consumer. That kosher slaughterer worked for the local butcher. And the local butcher and the, and the slaughterer had an interest in making more money from their kosher meat and cutting corners and certifying might, that might not be kosher in order to get the premium for kosher meat. So there's this built-in conflict of interest that arises. And this is a typical conflict of interest that occurs throughout private certification, which is the certifier is very often paid by the person who's selling the product. And at that point, there's an incentive for fraud, and that creates a lot of problems. So the problem grew to be so bad in New York that by 1900, 50% of the meat certified as kosher in New York was, in fact, not kosher. And how is that? How did people know that? Like, where does that statistic come from? 
Well, the New York City Department of Markets launched an investigation in the early part of the 1900s, and they went around and they found out what the different ways in which people slaughtered meat and how it came to be labeled as kosher. And they found, for example, that in many establishments throughout the city of New York, people would sign, hang a sign that said kosher when, in fact, they were buying meat that was slaughtered by the local non-Jewish slaughterhouse. So in some ways, it was a sort of open secret within the industry, and the consumers really didn't know where to turn, and it was a huge crisis. I mean, 50% of the meat being unreliable is just a huge scale of kosher fraud, and we're talking about a market of 1.5 million consumers in New York. Yeah, and then I mean, it's so has so many um, similarities to the kind of food fraud issues that we still see today, and that also have ancient origins. Um, mm-hmm. And um, kosher, the history of kosher food, Tim, as you outline in your book, is actually very almost racy. I mean, there's mafia and murder and a lot of you know really juicy, scandalous stuff. Can you tell us some of those? you know, flashpoints in terms of the history, how it went from being this this rogue industry to being, again, one of the only reliable certifications or most reliable that we were seeing? Well, as I mentioned before, the fraud was not only widespread, it was actually quite violent. So there were organized groups that were controlling kosher poultry distribution in New York. There were gangland drive-by shootings. There were unsolved murders. It was really terrible. One of the top three areas of organized crime in New York City in the 1910s and 20s was actually kosher meat and poultry alongside guns and alcohol. Um, This all began to turn around with the change in consumption patterns and the rise of industrial food. And as more and more people in America started to buy packaged foods, it turns out that Jewish consumers wanted to buy packaged foods just like everybody else. And there was a new market for kosher certification, and it wasn't the meat market. It was actually the packaged food market. And that market works differently, because in that market, unlike in kosher meat, the supervision is much less expensive. In kosher meat, you need to have a ritual slaughterer, and you have to have who's carefully trained and costs a lot, and then you have to have supervision of the meat from the moment of slaughter until the point of sale. It's very labor-intensive. If you want to certify a box of Cheerios or a box of cake mix, all you need to do is have an initial inspection of the factory, and as long as there's a regular production cycle and you're getting the ingredients from the same place every day, the supervisor who's supervising kosher will come by once in a while periodically. And you can spread that cost across many units, you know, 50,000 cereal boxes in a production run. So Around the middle of the 1900s, in the 1950s, a rabbi named Alexander Rosenberg decided he wanted to see if he could sell kosher certification to the American food industry. And the American food industry said to him, well, why do we need kosher certification? There aren't that many Jews who buy food in America. It's a small community. And Alexander Rosenberg said to them, if you get kosher certification on your food, you'll see a huge jump in sales. He went to Duncan Hines, and he said to them, if you certify your cake mix, I can guarantee you a huge jump in key markets where there are a lot of Jews who care about kosher. And those markets are Brooklyn, North Chicago, Atlanta, Miami, Charleston, Houston, L.A. And he said, go ahead and do this. And what's going to happen is the name of the game in food marketing is shelf space. You will get a bump in these key markets. They will move your cake mix from the bottom of the shelf to the middle of the shelf. And if you remember, if you've ever gone into a supermarket to look for a new product like cake mix, you're more likely to buy whatever's at eye level in the middle of the aisle. And so Alexander Rosenberg said it's all about shelf space. And sure enough, Duncan Hines got kosher certification. And shortly thereafter, they saw a huge change in their shelf space. And in two weeks, two months, they saw a 40% rise in their sales of cake mixes. And this rippled throughout the food industry. People were lining up 
General Mills and General Foods to get kosher certification, and thus was born a very big business in kosher certification, and it's grown and grown ever since. And I guess that that also contributes to the sophistication that in turn allows for the reliability of the uh, certification. Well, what happens is, is that once Alexander Rosenberg convinced American food industry owners to get kosher certification, it was not entirely clear what the difference between one certification and the next is, so you might as well get the cheapest. So different kosher certifiers had to come up with some way to differentiate their certification from their competitors. They needed to brand themselves. Just like you brand food, they needed to brand their certification. And the only thing that you're selling with certification is reliability. So the certification agencies in competing for accounts to provide certification had to show that they were more reliable. And they did that in a number of ways. And one way they did that was to professionalize, to provide more training, and to make sure that their certifiers knew the food industry that they were supervising. And the second thing they did is to provide more oversight so that when there were problems or mistakes, they were caught and remedied quickly. So there's this huge incentive in the competition for clients to certify their products to be more reliable than your competitors. So, Tim, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll come back and talk more about the significance of the kosher label. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Listening to Tanning Bed by Rectech. This is Eating Matters on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome back to Eating Matters. I'm your co-host for this episode, Talia Ralph, and we're here with Kim Kessler in the studio at Roberta's talking to Tim Lighton about kosher certification in America and how it became the most reliable. And we're actually, you know, sort of doing it in honor of Passover. And Tim, you wrote a really interesting article um, a couple years ago about uh, a bit of a scandal about Passover kosher food, because that is a obviously a whole other can of worms in terms of food certification. And there was um, a bit of a, an uproar um, about um, vinegar. Is that right? Could you sort of share that, that anecdote? 
Uh, sure, sure. you're referring to the great Passover vinegar scandal of 1986, <laughs> yes. which was really an <laughs> earthquake moment for the kosher certification industry. Essentially what happened was is that there was some concern during preparations for Passover that a particular brand of gefilte fish had been certified for Passover, but the vinegar that was used in the gefilte fish had been derived from um, corn alcohol. And corn alcohol is normally per- permissible, but it's not permissible on Passover because it has um, qualities that don't make it consistent with Passover laws. And when the Star K, which is one of the premier and leading certification agencies, discovered this problem, they decided to pull the product off the shelf. It had been certified by another agency called the Circle, um, the Circle K, the OK, which is out of Brooklyn. And it turns out that when they investigated the nature of the alcohol and traced back its origins, the problem wasn't that the alcohol was made from corn. The problem was that the alcohol was made from a product that was completely impermissible, not only for Passover, but altogether, which is non-kosher grapes. And this sought off a huge problem because it turns out that this, that this vinegar that had been derived from alcohol of grapes that were non-kosher had been used not only in this gefilte fish, it had been used in thousands of different products. I mean, if you think of the number of products that include vinegar, especially in the condiment aisle, it boggles the mind. And it turned out that there was a need for a massive recall. And the recall didn't just involve the OK certification agency out of Brooklyn. It turns out that most of the major certifiers had certified products that at some point in their production had included this non-kosher vinegar. It set off a firestorm. There were recalls of thousands of products. Tens of thousands uh, of product units were pulled off the shelf, and there was a huge shakeup, and there was a massive decline in confidence in kosher certification across uh, the kosher market. And what this did is, is it shocked the kosher certification agencies into beefing up their standards, building a kosher certification organization, a trade organization that um, vets agencies, creates higher standards, and it showed the incredible interdependence between these agencies. So up until this point, I think most of the agencies had thought they were merely in competition with each other to be more reliable. But at a certain point in this crisis, they realized that the real problem was is that the fate of one of them could take down all of them, and that if one party made a mistake, one of these agencies made a mistake, it would affect everyone. And so in addition to competition, we begin to see in the kosher certification world a certain amount of cooperation, a desire to maintain high standards, and not only to help out other agencies, but make sure if they make mistakes, that those mistakes are outed very quickly and remedied quickly. So there's an interesting dynamic here between competition and cooperation within the certification industry that I think has ultimately served the consumer very well, but it came at a great cost during the vinegar scandal. So what do you think that for people who are worried about what they're eating, and as we see all of these additional efforts to give greater security around where your food is coming from or, and how it was produced. Um, you know, you've talked about the kosher system as not necessarily being something that um, can be looked to as a solution, but can be a model for a potential solution for other, um, other identifying factors that people want to know about their food. How do you see that working, for example, um, in with regard to sustainable seafood, let's say. Sure. So, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, there's an increasing desire among consumers to know more about where their food comes from and how it's made. And we see a variety of different labels. We see fair trade labels. We see sustainability labels, gluten-free, GMO. And I think what kosher offers is that kosher offers an example of a system, a private certification system, that works well in the sense that it provides reliable guarantees 
an assurance to the consumer that what the label says is true inside the package. And if we pull out a few of the basic things that make kosher work and make it successful, we're going to know what are the conditions that are necessary to build reliable certification in these other areas like fair trade or gluten-free or GMO. So I would point to a number of things. First of all, there has to be a consumer demand for the certification. If there's not a consumer demand, then companies have no incentive to let the certifiers come in and to go through the factory and to make sure that everything is being done right according to the standards. And in kosher, we know that companies are lining up for kosher supervision and kosher certification because it's a significant market niche. It means somewhere between a half a percent and two percent of the market share. No company is going to give that up. So if there's strong consumer demand, companies are going to be willing to open themselves up to certifiers for thorough can examination. I, can I ask you one thing about that does it sure. does it result in a price premium for kosher kosher certification does not result in a price premium for most industrial products packaged goods and that's for the reason i mentioned before the amount of certification that goes into cake mix or cereals or other types of packaged goods is spread out over tens of thousands of units so you have an initial factory inspection and then you have monitoring periodically and unannounced inspections by the supervisors, but you have huge numbers of products. And so what happens is there would be, you know, potentially a tiny markup on those products, but the companies swallow that tiny markup because they make it up in market share. They see a bump in their sales. So cake mix that has a kosher certification doesn't cost any more than cake mix that doesn't. This is very different in meat, which is a much more labor-intensive certification system. And the book doesn't really talk much about meat because I'm less interested in kosher per se than in successful certification. And industrial packaged food certification is the successful example that I'm looking at. And that's where the consumer demand creates this high level of willingness of companies to open themselves up to scrutiny that in many ways they might not open up otherwise. Another very important feature of kosher is brand competition. There's got to be a strong sense of competition between these agencies, and it has to be based on reliability. They have to compete not on price, who can give the cheapest or the easiest certification, which we see in other areas of certification. They have to compete based on who's the most reliable, who can consumers trust. And in order to make good on those brand promises, they have to build in oversight and professionalization. A third thing is that you need to have agency interdependence. Just like I mentioned in the vinegar scandal, each of these agencies is subject to problems if other agencies who certify the ingredients that are being included in the final products that they certify aren't doing their job. So this means that every agency is looking over the shoulder of other agencies in the supply chain, and there's a kind of self-policing feel or quality to kosher certification. The fourth thing is consumer vigilance. There's this 8% of kosher consumers who are religious Jews who only eat kosher, they spend a lot of time monitoring the reliability of these certifications. And people are surprised to find out that when, you know, for example, you know, prayers are done on Saturday morning, in my synagogue we all sit around and we share, you know, a light snack. And while we share that light snack, we don't talk about the weather. We tend to talk about what's going on in the kosher certification market, what's going on with kosher food. And the last thing like, what's, a, and what's an example of what? A shared sense of mission, which is, is that the kosher certifiers need to have a sense of mission, and they do. They have a sense of religious mission, that this is a, a, a higher obligation than just business. I, I want to ask you what's an example of the kind of thing that might come up when you're sharing a snack about kosher certification, <laughs> like too. a recent recall or... Sure. So, for example, if there's been a recall or there's a rumor out there that the certification of a particular product may not be so reliable, then the word goes out across social networks. And in our synagogue, in, this, in the kitchen, the rabbi has posted a list 
And the list includes a list of all the reliable certifications. And that list is also based on chatter that sometimes is prompted by certification agencies, but also often percolates up from consumers. It's often the case that a consumer will call a certification agency and say, I just bought this package and it said it was dairy-free, and I found inside something that, that looks suspiciously like dairy, or I found an ingredient on the box that makes me think there might be dairy. The certification agency will launch an investigation. So these vigilant consumers and this chatter that goes around social networks actually informs the system, and it's very important. So when we go back to things like fair trade or GMO-free, it's very important that consumers be vigilant in this regard and that there be a certain amount of responsibility taken by the consumer markets that rely on these. One of the tensions that comes up in these labeling issues and when you talk about consumer vigilance is the, is the challenge of over uh, oversaturation of information. So consumers become overwhelmed. And then the idea of, you know, adding onto them an obligation to monitor the certifications that they care about. A lot of people ultimately have the reaction of kind of throwing their hands up in the air and saying, I'll just, I got to do the best I can. And, you know, that's all I can do. What do you, do you think that there are things um, that can be done to counteract that? Well, the way this works in kosher is, is that as we mentioned before, there are 12 million kosher consumers in the market, but 12 million people don't really keep tabs on what's going on in the kosher certification world. In fact, you know, nine-tenths of them don't really have that much of a clue about what goes into kosher certification. They just think it's more reliable. But there's this 8%, there's this core group, and that core group is the group that's keeping the certification industry honest. And if you don't have a core group like that, it doesn't have to be a majority or even a significant portion of the market, but it has to be a vigilant group and it has to be somewhat organized through social networks or otherwise. I just don't see how private certification is likely to succeed. And I guess I would say that I'm not a proponent of private certification as a regulatory fix-it for every problem. My argument is, is that when the conditions exist, it's extremely effective, and it can overcome a lot of the problems that government regulation has or that industry self-regulation has, but only if the conditions are right. And one of those conditions is you have to have that core of people. If you look at places like organic, I think you see in the organic market, there are some people who are organic consumers who are so serious about it that they protect the organic market and its integrity for the rest of us who are sort of more casual organic consumers. But that is a government that does come from derived from government regulation. So I, I, I guess that would be maybe um, one of the last things we'd love to hear from you on is that comparison between, you know, when government's the right way to go, what are the issues, is our food safety the type of issues that we should be looking to government for, um, and how do you see government and private regulation working together? Sure. So I think organic is an interesting hybrid. Organic, of course, started as a private certification, and there was a big movement um, that was a private movement. And the USDA came in and decided, or you know, Congress decided, that the USDA should set a national organic standard. Now, the advantages of that are that when you buy organic and it's USDA certified organic or it meets the USDA organic certification, you know what you're getting. The disadvantage to this is there are many people who are in the organic market who want more or less than what the USDA offers. And in that sense, government regulation provides an extra level of oversight or reliability, but it locks consumers in to a particular standard. And what we find in kosher or fair trade is that people want different levels of stringency. So even even within the kosher world, there are those people who want an extra high level of stringency, so they restrict themselves to certain certifiers who deliver that. And there are other people who want a wider market selection and looser standards, and there are certification agencies that deliver that. And that market segmentation provides a lot more choice for consumers who feel very strongly about what they want. Organic, as I said, has advantages or disadvantages, and it's certainly the 
case that government can be involved in private certification. We see this also in Energy Star. But in some ways, it's a mixed blessing, and there's a trade-off. You sort of get benefits for it, but you also trade in a lot of consumer choice. So, Tim, before we wrap up, uh, we always like to ask people what uh, what what your own eating is like and how it has changed since you've started researching and writing about food, food safety and food labeling. And I know that your research covers a lot of areas, including nutrition labeling as well. So what do you eat and how do you navigate the supermarket aisle? So my buying and eating habits have remained pretty much the same since I started getting interested in food. As a family, we eat mostly plants. We cook from scratch. We try to support local and sustainable agriculture to the extent to which we can afford it. We're not really in the market for $4 tomatoes with three children. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say that the major change is, is that I've grown enormously in my appreciation for the complexity of the network of public and private institutions that regulate our food supply, whether it's labeling or safety or other things, and also the very wide variety of regulatory strategies that are available to these different um, institutions that regulate our food, and that there's so much more going on in food regulation than just the debate between more or less government. And that when these issues come up now, I have a deeper appreciation for just how complicated it is and really how much is available to us in terms of trying to regulate and address the problems in the food system that we want to. That's Tim Lighton, Professor Tim Lighton of Albany Law School. I want to thank you, Tim, for joining us today. And also thank you to my guest co-host, Holly Rolfe, and my assistant producer. That's going to bring us to the close of this episode of Eating Matters. And thank you also to Tim Archer for our show music and to our sponsors. The show is available as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher and here on Heritage Radio Network. We, of course, want to wish a happy Passover to all of our Jewish listeners after our program today. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.